Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Mom and Dad are Fighting is brought to you by Prudential's 4040 Vision, a multimedia microsite exploring what life and the future looks like to today's 40-somethings. Hear what inspires real people, the hopes they have for tomorrow, and much more. See yourself in their stories at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. And by Little Passports, Keep your kids busy with Little Passports, the award-winning subscription for kids. Right now, Mom and Dad are Fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month today with promo code MOMANDDAD. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash momanddad. And by bowlandbranch.com, the company that makes luxury betting affordable. Get the nicest sheets you've ever owned for about half the price of what stores and boutiques are charging. Order right now, and they'll give you $50 off a set of sheets, plus free shipping. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H dot com, and use the promo code MOMANDDAD. Hi, I'm Elaine Sheldon. And I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And we're the hosts of She Does, a series of audio documentaries that are part biography, part conversation, and completely about women working in media. Every other week, we ask writers, filmmakers, photographers, technologists, among many other creative outlets, what makes them tick. We get personal, because realizing the successful person sitting in front of you was once out of ideas or completely lost, you know, the moments they leave out of their bio, can be just what you need to lift you up and out of a creative crisis. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, what have you. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, November 19th, the Another Obama Administration Official Edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry 7, Sam 4, and Wally 2. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm also an editor at Slate and I am the dad of Lyra, who is 10, and Harper, who's 8. On today's show, we'll talk to outgoing Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan about standardized tests, school integration, and the biggest challenges facing our schools. Then Slate contributor and new mother Ruth Graham will join us to talk about her recent essay on the desire of some godless parents to raise their children with religion. Also triumphs and fails, a listener call about racist grandparents, and Ruth will stick around for a parenting triumph or fail in our Slate Plus segment. 
hey, why not like our Facebook page? It is where we post uh, recommendations and contests. It's where we talk to listeners. It's where Allison and I both use the official mom and dad Facebook account to make fun of each other in the comments. You can check it out at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. And if you love the show, tell someone about it. It really helps us reach more listeners, and it gives us a better chance to do more live shows more places in the country. This week, I want you to tell a cousin. I have, Allison, literally dozens of cousins, and every single one of them is great, even the ones who I haven't seen since I was like 10 and they were 35 and they smoked cigarettes in my grandma's backyard all day. But if you're lucky enough, gentle listener, to have a cousin you love in your life, reach out to him and share the gift of increasing our download numbers. Allison. Uh, did you notice that several 25-year-old cousins emailed us last week yes. after we said 25-year-old cousins email us, and they had varying opinions about the need for thank you notes? Most of them agreed they wanted to hear something. They liked thank you notes, or they liked getting a video uh, with a that is a video of the kid playing with the gift that they sent. A video None of them thank were like, good. no, don't ever contact me. No, somebody did say that I got it, that Allison got it right, because it's true that 25-year-old cousins are relieved, because then they don't, they don't feel like screw-ups when they don't send okay. thank Notes. One of them thought you were Okay, on to triumphs and fails. Dan, you go first. Uh, I have a fail. Mm-hmm. I think that this week I became one of those parents. You've been one of those parents. No, no. I think I really became one of those parents. Uh, so the backstory is this year at my daughter's amazing new school, which um, listeners have heard me talk about before, they have some interesting new homework policies, one of which I really love uh, and one of which is driving me crazy. The one I really love is that fourth grade and under has no homework at all, which is great. It is That's a smart decision to make. It's research-based. It's exactly what every school should be doing, uh, and it really makes our life easier with our third grader. But fifth graders do have homework. That's fine. Um, but the homework policy they've instituted in fifth grade that I hate is that all homework is now posted online on the class webpage as opposed to just sending it home in a folder. And you also do most of the homework online. Now, I have some problems just with this part of it. I find it super annoying, for example, that we spend most of our time battling to get our kids off screens, as discussed last episode, and now the school has found a way to inject more screens into their lives. But whatever. The main issue is that it turns out that Without physical pieces of paper in a folder, Lyra simply can't remember her homework. She can't remember what is due. And so for several weeks, we would get these like very nice emails from her teacher saying, oh, hey, Mr. Kois, Lyra didn't turn in something that was due. Can you please remind her? So last week, Alia was out of town, and I was determined to make sure that Lyra got all of her homework done. I didn't want to do it for her. I just wanted to make sure that she 100% knew what all the things were. So we sat down together. And we went to the homework page online, and we made a list of all the assignments that were due. And then I had her go down the checklist, do each one, check it off the checklist. And she was, like, very proud. She did a really good job on those assignments. She turned in the ones online she needed to turn in. She printed out a few things she needed to print out. And she brought them all in. And then on Friday, I get an email from the teacher. Lyra didn't turn in her John Glenn project. Can you please remind her to do so? And so I go back to the homework page, and there is the John Glenn Project due date November 23rd, which, I'll remind you listeners, is in the future. And so I very politely write back to the teacher, I'm so sorry, the homework page has this due on the 23rd, I'm a little bit confused, can you explain it to me? And the teacher writes back, oh yes, well that's when the final assignment is due, but if you look in Google Classroom, (laughs) you'll see that it's actually due in stages, and the first part was due today. And it's like, Jesus Christ. 
A, what the fuck is Google Classroom? <laughs> B, why can they not just send a piece of paper home with the due dates? Three, why have we gone from homework in one fucking place that my kid doesn't remember to look at to contradictory homework instructions in two fucking places my kid doesn't remember to look at? And so I... This doesn't sound like your fail. Oh, wait, are I, we getting to it? This sounds like the school's fail. And so, Allison, you I lashed sent an out. Uh-oh. to the teacher... And in retrospect, it was probably the kind of annoyed, snippy parent-to-teacher email that if someone forwarded it to me, I would be like, whoa, that dad needs to get a grip. But I was so annoyed by this teacher a little bit, but mostly it was that my sensibilities were offended by this terrible UI like, why is the school doing this thing that just makes everything more confusing and more difficult to understand in two different places? And they don't make sense. And it's making my daughter crazy and it's making me crazy. And now thanks to this email, which I now have sent multiple emails uh, that are much nicer in response to her various responses. It doesn't matter. She definitely knows that now I'm one of those parents. Can so we post this? Fail. Can we post your email on our Facebook Absolutely page? Absolutely <laughs> not. Under no circumstances. Uh, I feel you, How though. About you? I feel your pain. We have, like, I have all these apps on my phone, actually, from various classrooms asking us to have different, like, Remind Me app and some other app that, like, the way that they like to get in touch with us, not necessarily about homework, but, like, every class has a different way that they like to communicate, and it drives me crazy because things pop up all over, and then I forget about right. them. It's it's like it it serves no purpose whatsoever other than making everyone's life more hectic and insane. Uh, I also have a fail that I hope many of you can relate to and help me with. I think you definitely can help me with it, Dan, but cannot relate to it because you triumph in this regard. Mm-hmm. I am ashamed to admit this. This is not actually like a very like recent fail. This is just a general overall fail. But John and I have not found a way at all to incorporate volunteerism into our family life. Uh, Our kids don't really do anything for other people. And to be honest, other than some very minor charitable giving, neither do we. Uh, When we moved, I thought, okay, it's going to be a small town. There probably will be like a manageable amount of options and we can just pick something to get involved with and get started. And I got in touch with a local food bank. But the help that they need, which is significant, is usually during work hours and not exactly family friendly. And I, of course, I, no organization should have to think about making their needs fit my family schedule. That's actually not my point. My point is that we have to make the effort to fit our lives into the very real needs in our community. And we haven't done it yet. So I'd love to hear from listeners what kinds of volunteering they do with their kids and at what age. And Dan, I want to hear how you have been able to do this. Um, it's a part of parenting. I have not been able to succeed at and I feel like a failure. I have done okay at it. I haven't gotten my kids to do as much volunteering as I would like. I feel pretty happy about the amount that I do and the charitable giving that we do. I mean, one thing that we've talked about before on the show that is a, at least a way into thinking about it for your kids is the allowance trick that Ron Which Lieber we do, the spend, yeah. save, giveaway. Right, expensive save giveaway, and that has been like real for us. Like our kids have really, really pay attention to where those things are going, and now we get, you know, Lyra gets letters from Medicine Sans Frontières, and she opens them up and looks at them to see what they're doing with their money, and that they're asking her for more money. But the other thing that I would suggest, and I don't know where you guys are on this, and maybe we'll discuss it more when we have Ruth Graham later in the show, is that churches and synagogues are a great way to find these opportunities. All, all my volunteering is through 
the church that we went to for a while and now sort of don't go to anymore, except for that I still do a bunch of volunteering through them. And is that basically because it's like organized for you? Like Yeah, they, because yeah. they because there are people at that church whose whole job is to get members of the congregation involved in things and they send out an email that lists here are four things you can do and you get involved with a certain project and then you're looped in on that project and you can do it you know, whenever they need you. And that is really helpful. It, like, it really helps sort of take a lot of the mystery out of how we can help and gave me really practicable, uh, doable things that I could either find a way to bend my schedule around or that fit in my schedule and, and that I could do. And there have been chances to fit the kids into those, not as many as I would like, but I think that there will be more as they get older. And, uh, and that's been really great. And so I don't know where you guys are on finding a synagogue or that endless fight between you and John, but that's a way. It's not a fight. We can talk <laughs> about it later. I mean, in, in the next segment, I think we will. Listeners, I'd love to hear from you on this as well. Okay, coming up next, we're going to talk to Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan. But first, today's show is brought to you by Prudential. Today's 40-somethings are charting their own courses, sometimes by choice, but many times out of necessity. Caring for aging parents, starting new careers midlife, juggling today's financial realities with planning for retirement, and much more. Prudential's 4040 vision brings these challenges and others into sharper focus through real-life interviews and commentary from 40-somethings plus a compelling four-part podcast on first-time parenthood in your 40s with radio and television personality Faith Saley. Be sure to experience it all at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. After almost seven years on the job, Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan is preparing to step down at the end of this year. What has he learned during his time in the Obama administration about the obstacles to improving our public schools? How have his thoughts on standardized tests changed over the years? And what does he see as the most pressing challenges facing our schools and students today? Let's ask him. The secretary is joining us on the phone from D.C., and we're so pleased to have him. Hello, Secretary Duncan. Uh, thanks so much for the opportunity. So you and the president recently urged schools to de-emphasize testing and took some responsibility for the testing culture that troubles a lot of parents. But as far as I can tell, federal dollars and teacher evaluations are still linked to test scores. So what has to transpire for schools to actually test less? And what sorts of tests do you think are worth taking? Well, I think there's a common sense middle ground in all of this. So there are some folks who would like to walk away from any form of assessment, and we don't support that. And I think there are places not because of bad intent, but just of layers and decades of different tests of where it just became too much. And so what the president and I have been urging is folks to really sort of, you know, find, find the middle ground here, um, get rid of the fill out the bubble test, get rid of the, the duplicative stuff, get rid of the things that are redundant, get rid of the teaching to the test. But we should hold ourselves accountable every single year to see whether students are actually learning or not. And uh, I think a lot of districts, many states are working to reach that point. Um, but we were trying to encourage folks to, to move a little faster in that direction. What, how much can you, how much influence can you and the president's administration have on school districts in this way? Yeah, so what we've, I mean, a couple things. The vast majority of this testing is actually at the state and local level. Very little of it actually comes at the federal level. All we really require is one test, third through eighth grade in English and math, and one in high school. But the reality of it is, you know, kids and teachers and parents don't care whether it's coming from the school or from the state or from the district or from us. If it's too much, it's too much. So what we have asked Congress to do is, is they fix no child left behind, and that law is broken and should have been fixed a long time ago, except Congress is broken. We've asked Congress to put a cap on the amount of testing. Now, whether Congress will, will heed us on that, I don't know. 
But one, we asked for a cap, and two, we asked for resources to put behind this. So we're very, very serious about it. We've also tried to highlight states and districts that are being very, very thoughtful in how they do this and moving away from filling the bubble tests and looking at tests that look at critical thinking skills and writing skills and those things that uh, our students need to know going forward. So we're trying to both use the bully pulpit and challenge Congress to be part of the solution. Do you get the impression, though, that as long as the assessment of teachers and schools is tied in any way to these tests, that teaching the test is always going to be a fear or a concern? And is there some message, like very clear message the president and the administration could put out there to say, yes, we know that this is a concern and a fear, but here's here's what we really want these tests to do? Yeah, well, again, I think what I always say is the, the goal of every great teacher is not to teach. The goal of every great teacher is to actually have students learn and really understanding which teachers are doing an extraordinary job of helping all children, but particularly helping you know poor children and English language learners and students with special needs be successful if we really want to honor the profession and, and talk about great teaching and you know take teacher compensation to the next level. We have to stop being scared of talking about what great teaching looks like. Well, we've always said all ways around teacher evaluations. We need to look at multiple measures. It's never just looking at a single test score. That would be ludicrous. But it's looking at whether students are, are, are learning each year. It's looking at professional development. It's looking, you know, principal evaluation, peer evaluation, student surveys. We all know those teachers in our lives that had a huge impact for the positive. We know those that weren't so fantastic. So I think folks, you know, can and will, uh, you know, move to a more thoughtful place here. You were interviewed recently for an incredibly dismaying episode of This American Life about racial segregation in our schools. Uh, The reporter on that episode, Nicole Hannah-Jones, she framed racial segregation as the number one problem facing our education system that no one is talking or doing anything about in any large-scale, systematic way. Uh, I'm wondering, do you agree with her? And if so, what is the federal government's role here? Because states and districts have demonstrated that they're not fixing this problem themselves. And I don't think parents, especially white parents, are forming a movement to tackle the issue. Yeah, so again, it's always a little bit indirect at the federal level. What we have tried to do, and we've done it less successfully than I would like, is we fund magnet schools every single year pretty significantly. A big part of magnet schools' role and mission is to aid integration. And some have done that successfully. Some have done that less successfully than than we would like. You have seen some districts move in some pretty thoughtful ways. District of Connecticut, Denver's done some very interesting things. Uh, not just around race, but around socioeconomic integration, just moving attendance boundaries. And so what can we do? We can continue to put resources behind it. We can hold those places where we're giving grants accountable for showing some real improvement here. And again, we can also do a, a better job of highlighting places that are taking this seriously and are getting some pretty interesting results from it. Would you agree with the thesis of that piece that that's seriously the number one thing we could be doing, but but often are not to improve schools is to work on integration? Oh, no. I I think, unfortunately, there are many, many things that we should be doing. So it's nothing's ever that simplistic. So, yes, that is one of many things we can work on. Um, We desperately need to put more resources behind high-quality early childhood education. The fact that we don't do that as a nation is just mind-boggling. It's just heartbreaking that so many kids start kindergarten a year to a year and a half behind. It's mind-boggling that so many of our schools that serve black and Latino high, high schools don't offer the STEM classes they need to be successful in college. 
It's mind-boggling that we still have a school-to-prison pipeline, and so many kids are suspended and expelled each year, predominantly young boys of color. It's mind-boggling that we can't take on gun violence and protect our kids. It's one of the most heartbreaking things that I continue to see across the country and in my hometown of Chicago are the number of our babies being killed each year. So the honest truth is there are many, many things that we need to be working on and working on simultaneously. I wish there was one simple answer. The world is much more complex than that. So a few years ago, I wrote a piece arguing that it's every parent's duty to send their kids to public school. Um, And you send your kids to private school. So can you talk a little bit about that personal decision and tell me why I'm wrong? Uh, I don't know if I think you're wrong. My daughter's in eighth grade. My son's in sixth. My daughter went to public schools for for nine years, (laughs) pre-K and seven. And uh, my family just moved back to Chicago. It's a school where my wife worked for 10 years. It's a school where um, my sister and brother and I attended. It's our, you know, it's our neighborhood. And it just felt, you know, at this point, transitioning out of the administration, going back home, uh, the right thing to do. But I, I think it's very, very important that we all support public education. If you're a parent who has made the choice to send your kids to private school for whatever reason, do you feel like there are still things that those parents can do to help public education, oh, to support uh, public course. education? And again, whether you're in public or private, the question is every parent obviously wants to try to do the best they can for their children. The question is are we willing to stretch ourselves a little bit and help other kids? So whether it's tutoring, uh, whether it's mentoring, uh, whether it's coaching, whether it's helping with scholarships, there's a million ways, again, it doesn't matter where your child goes to school, um, to think a little bit more broadly about the community and how to, how to bridge those divides. I think it's so incumbent upon all of us as parents, yes, to, you know, we need to take care of, of our, our own children, but do we have the energy and the resources to do more than that? And that is obviously regardless of, of where your children you know, go to school, frankly, whether you even have children or whether your children are growing and gone to college and gone beyond, do you still want to help out and give back? And that's, that's a life-transforming opportunity for kids. Uh, Secretary Duncan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good luck in this next phase after the White House. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right. That was Arnie Duncan, the soon-to-be former Secretary of Education who served for seven years in the Obama administration. All right. Let's move on. Okay. Mom and Dad is brought to you by Little Passports. Are you looking for the perfect gift for your kids this holiday season? Give them the gift of adventure with a subscription to Little Passports. They'll receive monthly packages in the mail filled with letters, souvenirs, stickers, activities, and more, each featuring a new country like Japan or Kenya or Israel or Spain. It's a fun way for kids to learn about geography and cultures around the globe right from your kitchen table. I bet Little Passports can even help families talk about difficult topics in the news, like the events in Paris, by teaching kids not only facts about different places in the world, but helping those places feel less foreign to them. Mom and Dad are fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month today with promo code MOMANDDAD. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash momanddad. All right, moving on to our listener call. Each week, we take a listener call and try to answer it. If you have a question for us or one you'd like us to find an expert to answer, call us. Leave us a message at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE, what Dan was to his daughter's teacher. Oh, my God, was I ever. Now on to this week's listener call from Ted. Hi, this is Ted, and my question is about racist grandparents. I brought my two kids, now seven and four, over to my grandparents this past weekend, where the grandparents were in a tizzy about the latest Fox News story about the war on Christmas. 
this inevitably segued into a conversation with some racist overtones about Muslims and other groups. Now, I feel like my seven-year-old is just about at the age where she's going to start to ask questions about this. I grew up with a racist grandmother myself, and I remember coming to that realization around the same time my daughter is at now. And at the end of the day, I recognized that my grandma was a silly old racist. I wasn't really influenced by it, and while I lost a bit of respect for my grandmother, it wasn't something that I felt like I had to deal with more than asking my parents about it once. Are racist grandparents something that needs to be tackled head on? Do I need to have a conversation with my in-laws? Thanks, guys. That's a great question, uh, one that I think many people face, one that I faced when I was a kid with my racist grandparents. I think there's two issues here. And there's the issue of how you talk about it with your kids, and then there's the issue of whether you approach your in-laws about it. I think at the beginning of the call, Ted, you misspoke when you said that they were your grandparents. I think you meant that they were your kids' grandparents because later you refer to them as your in-laws. So I'm going to work on the assumption that these are your partner's parents. But so, Allison, I'll ask you, what do you think Ted's obligations are to say to his kids, to talk to his kids about it? How would you handle it if you were in this situation? I think he has an obligation to talk to both parties. Um, I think for the kids, it's something that you do away from their grandparents. Um, I don't think you need to wait for them to ask you about it. Um, I think it's fine to sit down after a grandparent has said something inappropriate uh, when you get home or in the car on your way home and to say that, like, you know, grandma and grandpa said some things that I don't agree with and that I don't want um, you guys to believe and here's why. Um, I don't think you need to, you know, vilify them, but I think you also don't have to sort of hedge too much. It's, you know, it's a, it's true. <laughs> and uh, I think then you should talk to your in-laws. I don't really think it's about talking to your in-laws like, don't say that racist stuff in front of my kids. I think it's like you should talk to people who are in your lives that you're close enough to about the terrible things that they think. And I certainly think we should respect our elders, but I don't think that means humoring racism and bigotry. I don't think we you have to just swallow that. I feel like it's slightly more complicated, though. And one reason it's more complicated is because they're his in-laws and not his parents. He doesn't mention his partner in the call, but, you know, I'm assuming that Ted's partner he or she feels the same way as Ted. And if so, the in-laws definitely know this, right? They already know there's a gulf in beliefs between them and their daughter or son. And I don't know that it's Ted's responsibility to go talk to them about this. I do think maybe it's a joint conversation with him and his partner or maybe just the partner talking to his or her parents. Um, but I also think that it's just going to be one in a long series of conversations that this person has probably had with their parents about their racist beliefs. And I don't know that that is a solution. I would I would suggest. Wait, what? It's not a solution to have a series of conversations. Why not? Well, no, but exhausting? The, if the if the ten previous conversations about how I hate it when you say those things about Muslims have not worked, how is the eleventh one going to work? Maybe they've never talked to you about it with them before, and it will be total news to this person's parents that she doesn't like it that her parents are racists. But I bet it's not. And I, my suggestion would be to make the conversation less about saying, you're racist, stop it, and more about saying, we are teaching our children this thing that we believe. When you talk this way in front of our kids, it makes us really sad because Ted remembers how disappointed he was in his grandmother when she said things that he didn't believe in. 
we don't want our children to view you in the same way. We want them to love and respect everything about you. And so we would really love it if you would find a way to think about that when you're thinking about things that you want to say in front of us and in front of them. I mean, I think that I would pose it to them as what kind of relationship do you want to have with your grandchildren? How do you want your grandchildren to view you? And leave it at that as opposed to just having yet another argument about how they're racists. Yeah. All right. I mean, I think that's, I think that's fine. I think that's good advice, but I also think it's like, okay to have family arguments about a difference in, you know, beliefs. So here's the other question, which Ted did not ask, but which I think is worth addressing because it's the more charged situation, I think, for everyone, which is, let's say you've had these conversations and you sort of come to a grudging agreement. Your parents know, your in-laws' parents know how you feel. Your kids know how you feel. But then everyone's in the house together at Christmas and Ted's partner's dad says something about Muslims right in front of your kids. Then what do you do? Do you challenge? Do you just sort of make a short blanket statement and change the subject? Do you just ignore it on the grounds that whatever you've done, what you can do? And at this point, it's not worth getting into a fight about it on Christmas Eve. What do you do? I mean, my answer is the same as before. I think you challenge it, not necessarily even for the benefit of your kids, just because, like, you're a human being and an adult. And every conversation around your children is not just about your children. All right. You're a much more honorable person than me. I definitely, (laughs) at some point, thankfully, I don't have this issue as I do not have racist in-laws or racist parents, but definitely, you know, in my family, when I was a kid, my mom would just roll her eyes when my grandpa said something horrible. And, you know, we would just be like, well, that's grandpa. And we still loved grandpa, but boy, we wish he didn't say those things about black people. We have people on both sides of our family who I would say we don't agree with. (laughs) Uh, And we have fights at every holiday. Now, luckily, those people are also like, it's sort of a tradition. And I mean, I don't, you know, in in some ways, it's sort of a tradition. Yeah, they are. In some ways, it's like a light and beloved (laughs) uh, (laughs) joke. But I think everyone gets their point across. All right. And it changes nothing. But Yes. Well, so that's the, end, the <laughs> lesson in the end, Ted, is that it's unlikely you're going to change your in-laws. Right. Uh, but I do think laying it all out for everyone is useful. And definitely talking to your kids. Yeah. Thank you so much for calling, Ted. If you have a question, call us at 424-255-7833. Moving right. on. So last episode, I announced a giveaway of two copies of the new Studio Ghibli film, When Marnie Was There, on DVD, Blu-ray, Combo Pack. I asked you all to post great stories of your own childhood friends to our Facebook page, and you did. There were so many great ones. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing about our viewers as children, like getting hit in the head with axes and breaking their beds by jumping on them and sharing secrets and checking out each other's underpants. Thank you to everyone who posted such great stories. I picked my two favorites. And Checking out each other's underpants? Yes. I yes. missed that one. That's what, that's what friends do. <laughs> uh, and each winner is going to get a copy of uh, the DVD Blu-ray set of When Marnie Was There. Our two winners, I'm going to read a little bit of each of their stories because they were really good. I love them. Uh, Wade Olson um, wrote a great story. He writes, when I was eight years old, I wanted to get out of doing chores on Labor Day, so I hatched a plan. I called my friend Ben and told him that my parents and our friend John's parents had said that it was totally okay to hike a huge mountain near our house as long as his parents said it was okay. For reference, the mountain is about 8,000 feet above sea level. Our house is at the foot of it at about 5,000 feet, so the climb is about 3,000 steep vertical feet. So he asked his parents, and they felt pressured by our parents' apparent acceptance to say okay. Then I called John and said that Ben's parents and my parents were okay with it as long as his parents were okay with it. And like before, they gave their assent. Then I went to my parents and said, well, Ben's parents and John's parents said we could climb this mountain. So could we go? And my dad said yes. 
So the three of us left with packed lunches and a little first aid kit with a reflective mirror, and we climbed that mountain alone. It took us hours, but finally, around lunch, we got to the top. There were no trails because it was so steep, we just had to climb. We ate lunch, tried to use the little mirror to signal our families at the base, and then we went back down the mountain, and around 4 o'clock, avoiding rattlesnakes and cliffs, we got home. We were 8 years old and totally alone. I know you asked for a story of a friend, singular, but this was a true and grand adventure, and Ben and John backed me up when times were tough. We would be considered pretty independent little kids today, but the truth is that we leaned on each other. Ben Wright and John Kemp were great childhood friends. I owe a lot to them. I love that, and also their parents would be arrested today. That's correct. They would be in jail. (laughs) In jail before those kids even got down the mountain. Uh, That was a great story. Our second winner is Kristen Wilson, who wrote, My elementary school best friend and I spent a lot of time together and fought like sisters. I remember one time when she was sleeping over, I mused aloud about how often we'd fought. I said, well, we fight about three times a day. We've been friends for three years times 365 days and presented her with an estimated lifetime number of fights that we had had. She did not appreciate the analysis and we fought about it. I also like that story. Kristen Wilson, you get a DVD. Thanks to everyone who placed stories on our Facebook page. They were really, really fun to read. Let's move on. Mom and Dad are Fighting is brought to you by Bull and Branch. So I was in New York last night, Allison, for the uh, Superfest on Broadway. And because I was going up for a fancy New York Broadway live show, uh, I stayed in a hotel instead of sleeping on my friend Seth's couch like I usually do when I come up to New York. And so I got to sleep on some really nice sheets and was reminded for the one zillionth time uh, that nice sheets are better than crappy sheets. Uh, Bull and Branch is a great way to get really, really, really nice sheets easy and guaranteed. Instead of having to go to a store and try and figure out what all the different thread counts mean and what you really want, you go to bullandbranch.com, you pick out the sheets you want. Uh, they are so confident that you will love their sheets, they will let you try them completely risk-free for 30 nights. That's right, you can get your skin flakes all over their sheets for 30 nights and send them back if you're not Gross. completely they satisfied. They want you to say skin flakes in their ad. Uh, it's right here in the copy, Allison. <laughs> And it gets even better if you order right now. They will give you $50 off a set of sheets plus free shipping. Just go to bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com and use the promo code MOMANDDAD. That's $50 off a sheet set uh, by going to bowlandbranch.com, promo code MOMANDDAD. All right, back to the show. Uh, so I don't believe in God, really. I'm a straight-up atheist heathen, yet... A couple of years ago, we started taking our children to a church uh, in our neighborhood. That choice was spurred by a lot of factors. We really liked the idea of them having, you know, some kind of grounding in the Bible and the best parts of the moral qualities that that book espouses. We wanted to participate in our new community. This is right when we had first moved to Virginia. We wanted to find service projects that we and our kids could do. And we wanted them to have some of the same memories that we have of Bible readings and the doxology and Sunday school. It turns out that we were part of a growing cohort in America, nuns returning to church. Not N-U-N nuns with the wimples and the habits and stuff. N-O-N-E-S. People who profess no particular faith, but yet we, like many other parents, are finding our rejection of the church a little tougher to countenance now that we have kids. So last week in Slate, Ruth Graham wrote a really interesting essay about this exact dilemma titled, Why Hold a Child Hostage to My Doubts? And she's joining us on the phone today from New Hampshire. Hi, Ruth. Hello. Is your adorable baby asleep? She is being quiet in the other room. I hope she's asleep. (laughs) She's in Bible study. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. So in your uh, piece, Ruth, to start off, you'd start by describing sort of your own belief system, and you invert that very traditional 20-something stoner self-description to term yourself religious but not spiritual. What did you mean by that? Yeah, well, I so I grew up in the evangelical church um, and actually had a really positive experience there, although I just can no longer remotely call myself evangelical. I'm, like, clinging very, very tenuously to the, you know, the label Christian in general. So, but the the rituals of being a Christian, so, you know, doing communion at church, singing hymns, um, the stories of the Bible, all of that are, are still very, very meaningful to me, um, but I just can't say anything for certain about, you know, what I believe beyond that, and I don't you know, have this instinctual feeling that there's a God, let alone that the Christian God is, you know, the the one and only. So, you know, I don't have that spiritual instinct or that spiritual feeling about the world, but I, the, the rituals of being a religious person are still important to me. You talk in the piece about about the sort of growing cohort of people who have kids and find that that is the thing that brings them back to the church of their childhood or just as in my case, a church. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is about having kids that sort of can spur this kind of transformation? I mean, I think having kids, um, in my experience, although I only, you know, I had my first child just a couple of months ago, so this is all brand new for me. Um, but I think it really forces you to confront, you know, not just what you believe, but how your behavior reflects that belief. So in the piece, I, I talk about this book, it's brand new, it's called uh, Losing Our Religion, um, and it's by a professor of religious studies, um, Crystal Manning, um, and the, the subtitle is How Unaffiliated Parents Are Raising Their Children, so it really gets into this, um, not just people who are returning to the church, but all different kinds of ways that so-called nuns are, are raising their kids with and without religion. But she talks about how kids sort of force us to confront our, our worldview um, in, you know, in a more direct way than I think a lot of us have to do before that. So you might have grappled with these things in an undergraduate philosophy class or something or a theology class or, you know, as a teenager going to church and deciding what you really believe. But then I think for a lot of us it's easy to not really think about that stuff again for, you know, until we have kids. So you can sort of spend your whole 20s not really thinking about this stuff. Um, and when you do have kids, suddenly you have to, you know, really make an active decision about how you're going to, how you're going to raise them. Um, so one woman that the author interviews in the piece, she describes kids as um, a mirror that reflects back what you actually believe rather than what you think you believe, which I think is just a really elegant way of getting at that. And it's notable that, I mean, not only does it have to force you to think about what you really do believe, it also means that you have another very curious human being in the house with you. And Ruth, as your child gets older, you'll see this, that they start asking really ingenuous but tough big questions about the world because they really want to know the answers to these things. And it's it can be really unsatisfying as a parent for the answer always to be, well, no one knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of dreading that time. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking forward to it, but it is kind of terrifying. Um, and I think in some ways, having some kind of spiritual or religious community helps, you know, deflect some of those questions. And then you can have further conversations. You know, I would hope that 
some of those conversations will be started for my daughter at church, and then we'll continue them at home. So, yeah, we'll see what that looks like. <laughs> it's interesting because I've, I've talked to my parents a lot about this, and I think there is some, I mean, obviously there's a generational shift in how um, we think about religion and, and how much faith and what we follow. But also, you know, I think my parents also probably didn't believe in God or didn't, you know, didn't think they knew, but they didn't they didn't worry about lying to us, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, it didn't bother them. Like, they were fine saying, of course there's God. Of course this story's true. And that's the problem. That's what I struggle with, which is like, and you write about this in your piece, Ruth, like, all of these questions that come up as your kids get older are really difficult to answer in an honest way and and still have them... It, it, difficult to answer in an honest way if you want them to then have a connection. And I think, you know, oftentimes I think, oh, I'm just overthinking it. And why don't I just, like, let them later find out just like I did? But mm-hmm. I I can't I, – I find myself not able to do that. We recently were celebrating um, Rosh Hashanah, and we went to services, and we came back. And my son, Harry, asked John if he believes in God, and I sort of held my breath. And my answer was going to be like, you know, what do you think? And John said no. And I was like, oh, is that – are we done now? Does that mean we're done? <laughs> like <laughs> Uh, is that settled? And then I started talking about the other reasons that I, you know, value being Jewish and how important it can be whether or not you believe. And it felt, I don't know, like it felt off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things there. One is that, you know, being religious, at least for me, is not just this set of like historical or cosmological beliefs. It's also this culture. It's this culture that I grew up in and that my parents and my grandparents grew up in. And, you know, for me, one that was a really positive experience. And so I don't know, I, you know, I hope I'm trying to imagine how to explain that to a three-year-old. I, you know, I'd be curious how, how you did that, you know, speaking about being Jewish and the importance of Jewish identity. But, you know, I'm hoping to be able to sort of transmit that culture to her without, you know, without having to tell her that I believe in you know, in hell <laughs> or, or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, so. I think in a way it is easier for me because there there are a lot of traditions and culture built up, yeah. up around Judaism that have nothing to do with the religious aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's harder for you guys. <laughs> yeah. I don't think yeah, it's it as hard. I mean, I don't know that it's as hard, Ruth, as you worry about. I mean, I agree that at three years old, it is hard for kids to grok, you know, really complicated concepts. But by the time that kids are five or six, I think that they can understand pretty sophisticated stuff. I mean, and especially if you, I mean, it depends on the church you go to as well. We, we, when we were going to church, it was a very woo woo church. It was the United Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, they were pretty loosey goosey about like how doctrinaire they were. And I do think that by five or six, it wasn't hard for us to tell our kids that we believe some of the things in this church. We have real doubts about others. Part of going to church is to think about the things that you believe and the things that you have doubts about and that the process of thinking about those things is important. And that's one of the real valuable things about having that kind of spiritual time on a Sunday and that the stories and the lessons and the time together are also important. And I think I feel like our kids got that. And I, I don't think it's too hard for kids to start to delineate between those things pretty early. Yeah, I hope you're right. I was just talking with a friend whose kids are, boy, maybe like five and eight or something right now. And she said a similar experience to me where she sort of returned to the church when she had her kids. And, you know, they went to Sunday school and all that. And then she stopped going when she started to realize that 
they were taking it really literally. Um, and, you know, her kids were sort of becoming true believers within the church. That was also, you know, a pretty progressive church. I don't know what denomination it was, but, you know, something akin to the UCC. And, yeah, she just stopped. She said she was, she sort of couldn't handle the, that turn toward literal belief that she saw her kids taking. And so, yeah, I'll see what it looks like. <laughs> That's something I, I also uh, wonder about now, which is like, sure, if you're, if you're basically managing your own family's religious commitment um, and identity to a certain extent, you can do that. But if you are actually committed to this, then you're going to send your kids to Sunday school and you're going to send them to Hebrew school. And frankly, like you're probably hoping to do a lot of outsourcing. We just started sending Sam to a Jewish preschool. And it's great because he's like learning about all this stuff that we don't have to then like, you know, actually teach him in the home. (laughs) But at the same time, right, you're like you're handing it over and the teacher at Sunday school is not going to feel the same way that you do. And that's fine. I mean, I'm not like I've stopped. I used to think I wanted to find a synagogue that was exactly right for me and my family. And there's no such thing. Mm-hmm. And nor should there be. But I do think once, you know, once you start outsourcing it, then you don't have much control. Right. About the, I mean, in theory, at least as open-minded parents, right? We should consider that no different than the many, many other things that we want our children to come to their own decisions and feelings about as they grow older. In practice, I think that it is really hard for people and that many parents are like your friend, Ruth, and find that at the exact moment that their kids really start espousing real religious beliefs, they like get the creeps. Uh, And that is hard for them. But I do think it's worth it to allow them to discover these things on their own. Ruth, I'm curious for you, you grew up evangelical. I don't know what kind of church it is that you're going to now up in New Hampshire, but there is a certain there can be in some churches a certain kind of political component to the decision whether to go to that church or not. And do you think that plays into some people's decisions? Are there people who grew up, for example, in Catholicism who want to feel a connection to that ritual but simply can't bring themselves to associate themselves with the Catholic Church anymore? I think that, I mean, yes, I think the answer is yes. And that's a huge component of it for me, too. I go to a progressive church up here. It's a Presbyterian Church, PCUSA. And I absolutely couldn't go to, you know, a a conservative evangelical church, even though I grew up in a a fairly conservative congregation, even though, you know, like I said, it is one that I still have really warm feelings toward. Um, But I I think that that you almost can't help, especially if the theological details aren't as important to you and you don't hold those so highly in your own mind. I think the political stuff almost looms larger. Right. And that's though it's like if forced to make a choice between your children ending up having a deep, sincere religious belief and a deep, sincere political belief that you disagreed with, you, I would choose the religious one all the time, every, like every time. I would, too. I would, too. Yeah. All right, Ruth, the piece is really, really great. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us. It is called Why Hold a Child Hostage to My Doubts. It's on Slate. We're going to post a link on our show page and on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you. Okay, recommendations. Dan, what do you have? I have a very simple recommendation uh, inspired by what is, what's what's been going on in our house for about a month now and what has completely taken over our kids' lives. I recommend playing the Hamilton soundtrack for your kids even if you cannot afford the $1,000 that it would take to buy them tickets to the show anytime soon, which we cannot. But just playing them the music, which they have grown to love and sing along with all the time and now put on little performances in the house, uh, has been great. Because A, because the soundtrack is great and it's really fun for us to listen to as well. But B, it is also a really great learning tool. Like they, you can just, the kids get interested in and learn about 
things in a million different arenas of the world. We've been able to teach them about history. We've been able to teach them about hip hop. We've been able to teach them about politics and compromise and romance and betrayal and why it would be hard for Hercules Mulligan to have intercourse over four sets of corsets. Uh, overall, it's been really great and it's a joyful addition to our house. And so I, I, many of you, I'm sure, have already bought this soundtrack. Um, but if you haven't been playing it for your kids, play it for your kids. Kids love Hamilton. Allison. I am going to recommend quiche. (laughs) (laughs) If your children have quiche, they learn about history. They learn about, no. Um, Okay, if your kids are picky eaters like mine, obviously in the past week we haven't read or watched or done anything exciting, so I'm going to the old quiche. But if your kids are picky eaters like mine and you struggle to figure out what the hell to feed them for dinner, may I suggest quiche. This is why. It's basically breakfast for dinner, and every picky eater kid I know likes breakfast for dinner, and we always do, like, once a week, eggs and pancakes or whatever. But quiche is another it's, – it's basically like a, an egg sandwich. It's basically like a bacon, egg, and cheese. We do the bacon pie. and cheddar quiche. It's like so an it's, egg pie. It's like a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich, breakfast sandwich, only instead of the roll, there's crust. Yeah. Kids love it. That is my recommendation. Quiche. I mean, also, from the standpoint of – from the cooking standpoint, it's great because you make a quiche and then you have – two or three meals instead of just one right. meal. Right. And it's right. very easy to make. I would say like what so, what other parenting podcasts would probably say, which is like, and then you can stuff it with broccoli or whatever and hide all no, the, but I'm a, not saying that's that. That's a recipe for that your kids work. not eating right, the thing exactly. you made just because they would eat it. Right. Yeah. Okay. And that's our show. Please email us at momanddad at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips, and suggestions for future topics. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and please call us with your questions at 424-255-7833. Thanks to our producer this week, Zach Dinerstein, and to our regular producer, Ann Hepperman, just for being you. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Mom and Dad are Fighting as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks to Secretary Arnie Duncan and Secretary Ruth Graham. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Allison. Thank you all for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.